All right, good morning, Good Shepherd. Uh, it's good to be with all of you again uh, this morning. I want to take us through Psalm 16. Uh, it's a beautiful psalm. It's a psalm about security, a psalm about security, I think especially in this time uh, that the notions of what is, questions of what does it mean to be safe? How do I keep myself safe? What is, what is really secure is certainly something that is on our minds, and I want to take us through Psalm 16 um, as we'll see, it bears very much on this question. And it's also a psalm that we'll see, is a, it was a, it's a psalm of Easter. It's a psalm that, uh, what was, in what is arguably the, the first uh, Easter uh, Sunday, or Easter sermon, uh, Psalm 16 featured uh, very prominently, as well, and we'll see why that's the case. But it's very much a psalm about security. Um, and, I, and I think there are voices, I don't know about you, but there are voices within me, but also certainly voices around me that are encouraging uh, me to fear. They encourage me to give way to, um, to all manner of anxiety, uh, of stress. And th- this week and several, th- several weeks after, we're going to be looking at several psalms that help us to, to combat that fear, that help us to struggle with those anxieties. And again, there are voices w- are within us and around us, and often those voices are incredibly, um, they're, they're just very paranoid. They're, they're, they're voices that don't make sense. In fact, I was just reading last, uh, yesterday, in the, uh, in, I was reading uh, uh, through the news, and I came across one particular uh, um, author who was, in a sense, playing on this notion of fear and talking about how often you know, within our culture there are voices who want to provide us with facts for the purpose of creating fear. And he writes this. He says, Did you know, for instance, that there is enough water on the planet to drown everyone 4,000 times? Or how's that burden for, for encouraging? He goes on to say, Do you know that there are enough kitchen knives to murder all the spouses in the world? <laughs> he says, Do you know that there are enough pencils? There are enough pencils to put out everyone's eyes. There are enough fish bones to choke the combined population of France and Italy. He says there are, no, there are enough ties, belts, suspenders, and pajama drawstrings to hang everyone over the age of 40. There are enough cigarettes, if eaten, to make everyone in Africa south of the Sahara throw up. And he gives, he continues to give these sort of rather comical scenarios, scenarios that in some sense try to make us fear. He goes on to say, do you, know, do you know that there are enough stairs for all the toddlers in the world to fall down? There are enough statues to crush the inhabitants of the 14 largest cities in the American Midwest. And, and so this, this notion, though, of, of, of facts that often lead to fear. And what do we do with that? What do we do with the sense of this, this, this fear that leads us to a, a place of wondering, are we secure? What does it look like to be safe? Where is real security? Where are real security and, and real safety found? And it's a question that, that, that David himself asks, not only in Psalm 16 and many psalms, but I want to take, I want to take, um, take a look at this psalm today because I think it will be encouragingly, uh, very helpful. And I want to I frame a lot of what I have to say in terms of questions. I want to ask, in the midst of crisis, what can keep us safe? What, what, what sort of questions do we need to ask to keep us safe? So again, these are, if we will, key questions 
that will, that, that will keep us safe in crisis. So let's read this now, Psalm 16, um, uh, the, the very word of the Lord. David writes, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods, nor take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night. My heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you, you will not abandon me to the, to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Again, what a, what a beautiful psalm. It's an Easter psalm, and it's a psalm, I think, that is especially relevant for our time. So let's, as we consider our crisis, as we consider what it means to be secure, what it means to be kept safe, we see in verse 1, that's exactly how David begins. He prays, keep me safe, my God. Now, in the midst of this struggle, there are questions that are, I don't know about you, are, are my heart, my, my mind just begins to ask questions. How can I be kept safe? And let me ask you, in the midst of this crisis, to be kept safe, to whom, to whom are you saying, keep me safe? To whom are you saying that? To whom are you, are you um, does, from, from what or from whom are you seeking security? And David actually goes, he actually leads us through what we might call a series of questions. He gives us a series of, of, of ways in which he responds to, to crisis, the ways in which he responds to being threatened, to being unsafe. And so for David, the first question that he asks is this. It's, it's very simple. It says, who will be first? In the midst, when I'm afraid, who will come first? That is to say, to whom will I be committed? Who will have a priority? For some of us, it might be family or friends. We may say, uh, who will come first? Yeah, absolutely, family, friends. But of course, family and friends are complicated. There are complicated, even unhealthy dynamics. Or we may say, who will come first? Maybe it's a certain politician. Maybe it's a certain political party. We may say, um, it's, it's a, what will come first? A job. But of course, jobs are uncertain. They're unrelenting. They're often employee, our employers uh, and supervisors are ungrateful. Or we could say, who will come first? And we say, you know, my, I, myself. I, I will come first. But of course, the more we lean on ourselves, the more committed we are to ourselves, the more we have to look out for ourselves, 
the, over, the more anxious, the more overwhelmed, the more alone we can be. So how does David answer this question? Well, David, in the midst of crisis, he renews his commitment to God. He renews his commitment to God. He says, he say, I, we read in verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. That is, you are my master. He renews his commitment to God. David says, he will come first. He takes God's side. That is to say, he, he stops trying to control everything. He fully surrenders See, it's, in, it's actually, David understands that it's, it's in service. It's in service to another that we find real solace. It's in service to another that we find solace. In fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 12, we read this. The sleep of the laborer, or actually it's more literally, the sleep of the servant is sweet. Now, why is that? The sleep of the laborer, the sleep of the servant is sweet. The reason it's sweet is because they have no responsibility. They're not in charge. They don't have to worry. There's no anxiety. And David, the very first thing he does in the midst of, of crisis, the very first thing he does when he realizes that he is unsafe is that he actually aligns himself with God. He renews his commitment to God. Recently, I was, uh, I was taking an Uber. This is before all this crisis. So I was taking an Uber somewhere, and I started talking to the guy, and the guy who was driving used to be a, uh, an army general, a two-star general. And I, I, was, I was kind of taken aback by that, and I, and I started talking to him, and I said, do, do, you, do you miss being a general? And he kind of paused and thought about it for a second. He says, what, do I miss the crushing responsibility, the anxious medicate, sorry, the anxiety meds I was on, the impossible deadlines, the politics, and the sleepless nights? He laughed and said, not at all. See, so often we think, oh, to be on top, oh, to be in charge, oh, to be in control. And David doesn't buy it. He realizes that there's no way he will be in control anyway, and so he aligns himself with the one who is. He renews, in the midst of crisis, David renews his commitment to, to God and finds in that a solace, a sweetness. He finds rest and sleep. What would it look like if every night for the next three or four weeks, you were to finish or perhaps begin your day or end your day reciting the words that we often recite on our Sunday mornings here at Good Shepherd, the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. The question is, Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am what? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And of course, in renewing his commitment to David, to, sorry, when, in David, in renewing his commitment to God, he renews his commitment to what is good. Look at the second half of verse 2. David, David declares, apart from you, I have no good thing. See, David recognizes that God is the source of all that is good. There's this unmistakable connection between the good Lord and the truly good life. In fact, with my kids, we often do this. We'll, we'll actually list the various things in our lives that we love. And, uh, and, then, and then I'll say, 
Well, those were all God's ideas. They're all his ideas. That All of that is truly good in life, David recognizes. It's truly from God. In fact, just recently, that was last night, Julianne, my daughter Julianne brought me her favorite book, and it's called Where's My Teddy? And we read it together, and we laughed, and we talked about it, and we looked at the pictures. And you think, wow, what a beautiful thing, like stories, like drawings, like humor and rhyme. And of course, that is God's, those are all God's ideas. They're all from, all that is good is from God. And, and in the midst of crisis, David realigns himself. He re, renews his commitment to God. Of course, in renewing that commitment to God, he seeks, listen to this, he seeks out and celebrates God's community. Look at verse 3. David continues, he says, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. See, for, for David to renew his commitment to God is to renew his commitment to God's people. Because the idea in some ways is very simple. That true security, the way that God expresses his security, the way that he reminds us of his security, the way that he shows us and protects us and shows us how he is actually a God who cares for us is precisely through the people of God. So let me ask you, good shepherd, are we doing this? Can we say of, of, of God's people, can we say of one another, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight? What a statement. Can we say to God, I want you from, can we, now think about it this way, in a negative way. Can we say to God, I want you from my father, but not these sinners for my siblings. Let me ask it positively. When was the last time you expressed your delight in someone else at Good Shepherd? Now more than ever, it's a, it's a great time actually to send a text, write an email, call up on the phone and just remind someone of just how, how incredibly, um, just how much you celebrate them, how encouraged you are by, the, by them, how much they've meant in your life. In the midst of crisis, David renews his commitment to God and to God's people. So he, 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 he sees the, the goodness in God. He seeks out God and celebrates the community of God. But next we see that in terms of renewing his commitment, he sees through God's competition. He sees through God's competition. Look in verse 4. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. And then he declares, I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. He's speaking of ancient ceremonial rituals of taking a libation that is some sort of a drink and, and, uh, and pouring it out in some sort of ceremony. And he speaks of not taking their names on his lips in the sense of not you know, you, vowing uh, by, their, by the names of these gods or not, not invoking these gods for help. Because he believes, why does he believe? Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. He says, you know, what might seem a short-term fix in the midst of crisis, running after other sources of protection, other sources of security, it will in the end only lead to more suffering. What an incredible line. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. You know, this is such a, an important thing to keep in mind in the midst of crisis. 
When we think of things like, imagine right now, some of you may see on the news, you see different persons, different Hollywood actors or wealthy persons, and they're quarantined in their million dollar mansions or their yachts or something. They think, wow, that's, that's just, wouldn't it be great to have that? Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with um, a song that was sung, really covered by Johnny Cash in the months before he died. It's a song covered, it's a song by Nine Inch Nails. And the video, the video of the song is, is probably, in fact, it's been hailed as one of, the, one of the greatest music videos of all time. The song is called Hurt. And the refrain goes like this. Uh, and Johnny Cash, when you're, when you're watching them uh, sing these words, you can just see that he means this. I mean, it is something that he takes this song um, and he makes it his own. And he says, what have I become? My sweetest friend, everyone I know goes away in the end. And then he speaks of all his fame and his fortune, and he says, and you can have it all. You could have it all, my empire of dirt. My empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. To the sense that we can see in this song, we can see through the emptiness of the promises of this world, the emptiness, the sorrow, the suffering that accompany the pursuit, the running after uh, uh, of other gods. Or think, of, think about the idea of sexuality. And so often we, we, um, we uh, seek refuge in the midst of crisis in sexuality. And uh, I just, there's a, a great example. It's a wonderful book by a woman named Helen Thorne, and she talks about just that notion of, of purity and sexual purity and the struggle there. And she speaks very, I think, very insightfully of, of how when in the midst of that struggle, there's a progression of feelings. And she talks about how so often that what, le- what, leads, so what leads us into that retreat in the midst of crisis is that we are alone, we are scared, and we want to retreat we're overwhelmed, and she, and she talks about this, again, this progression of feelings. She says, first, we feel, we feel new. There's, a new. there's something exciting about engaging in that sort of activity. There's something new. It's, it's different. It it's excite, excites us. We feel new, and then she says, after that, we, we feel great. There's something wonderful about it. We feel so wonderful, so enticing. But then she continues, it's so short-lived. And we feel ever more alone. So yes, we feel new. Then we feel great. But then we feel even more alone than we did before. And then after that, we feel out of control. We can't stop doing this. And then finally, she says, we feel dirty and guilty. Again, the sorrows or the suffering of those who run after other gods will increase more and more, says David. David sees through God's competition. In renewing his commitments of crisis, he renews his commitment to God. And one of the ways that he does that is that he, he works hard to see through God's competition. So the first question that we ask in the midst of crisis, when we want to be secure, is to whom will I be committed? Who or what will be first? Who will be that priority? What will be that priority? The second question, though, that David asks is, when will I be content? When will I be content? When will I be satisfied? He speaks of this idea of provision and of fullness. 
Where, what will make me truly full? See, in the midst of crisis, we often realize, oh, we don't have what we need. And it makes us wonder, well, what, what do I need? What will bring contentment? What will bring fullness? And, and for David, of course, his answer is this, that he finds his contentment in God. Look at verses 5 and 6. He writes, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. David says, back in verse 2, if you remember, he says um, that God is, was a source or is the source of all that is good. But here he's saying not only is he the source of all that is good, he is in fact himself the supreme good. Not only is God first and foremost not only should we be the one to whom we are committed, but he's also the source of fullness. He's the one who is true commitment. Several times with my children, as they have grown up, I've asked them this question. Would you rather have all things or the God who made all things? See, here in these verses, this is so important. In these verses, in five, uh, verses 5 and 6, David recognizes that there's nothing more important to have than God himself. Why have the gifts when you can have the giver? Why have the creation when you can have the creator? David loves that contentment is found in that connection. David understands that life is, that, that contentment is not about what you have, it's not about even what you know. Contentment is about who you know. And he says, I know the one who is the source of all good things. I know the one who is himself the supreme good. Listen to this contentment as expressed in Psalm 73. The psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can you say those words? Can you hear the freedom? Can you hear the, the joy in those words? And so we see here that in the midst of crisis, the first thing that David does is he recommits himself to God. He stops trying to control everything. And here in the second part, he says that, God, that David says that he, he wants to seek a, he finds contentment in God. And in so doing, he stops coveting everything. I don't know about you, in the midst of this crisis, you've been coveting things, wanting more of this, more of that. He stops coveting everything. And he invites us to do the same. But there's a third question. There's a third question I think that David calls us to ask in the midst of crisis. He's, it's this, where will I get counsel? To whom will I be committed? Who will be first? The second question, of course, is where can I find contentment? And the third question is, where, where will I get my counsel? Who will be my, my expert, my sage? Who will give me perspective and focus? Will it be the media? Will it be Fox News? Will it be CNN? Will it be some online source? Will it be Ellen DeGeneres? Will it be Jimmy Fallon? Will it be talk radio? What will be the source of our counsel? And of course, David gets his counsel from God. Look in verses 7 and 8. He says, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. 
Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes, oh, listen, it's so beautiful. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. Literally, I have set the Lord before me continue. I've set him before me. My focus is upon him. I'm listening. He continues, with him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Isn't that beautiful? In the midst of crisis, where will you get your counsel? David says, I will follow God. And by following him, I will never fall. Isn't that those beautiful words? With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And what's so amazing is that he, he, he stops the questioning. So often in the midst of crisis, excuse me, so often in the midst of crisis, we're questioning all these questions. What about this? What about that? What about that? And David says, no, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. I will listen to his counsel, and I'll be at peace. I will have calm. Isn't that enviable? Isn't that what you want? David stops the endless questioning. He recognizes that not only is God an authority over all things, but that God is also an authority on all things, and he seeks God's counsel. And what's so amazing, what's so beautiful here, is that it's counsel that corrects and calms. I love what he says here. It's in verse uh, in, in verse 7, he says, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. The word instruct here is actually quite, um, it's actually a little more challenge. It's actually a little more confrontational. You could say, at, even at night, my heart confronts me. David says, when I surrender myself to the Lord, I think this is so beautiful. When I surrender myself to the Lord, I am able to correct myself. Because I don't know about you, but I often just, the theater of my mind, um, just all, I, I just can run rabbit trails. My fear can just take off. And I, I just can't correct myself. And David says, when we, when we surrender ourselves to the Lord, we make, when we set, he says, when we set our, we keep our eyes always on him. He says, even at night, our hearts will be able to correct ourselves. Isn't that beautiful? Do you really believe that? That when we actually surrender ourselves to his counsel, when we take God at his word, it will lead to a serenity, to a self-correction, and to a, a, a calm. I love how he says that with him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I will be at peace. And John Calvin wrote these words, to set God before us, is nothing else than to keep all our senses bound and captive that we may not run out and go astray after any other object. Isn't that beautiful? Calvin understands just how our hearts work and how fickle we are and just how we can get wrapped up in all manner of, uh, of things. What, what, a beautiful, uh, what a beautiful picture here. What a beautiful counsel that we receive. So the fourth and final question that we have for crisis is this. Um, um, it, it basically turns on confidence. Where in the midst of Christ, in the midst of crisis, will I find confidence, especially as life draws near its conclusion, especially when life is nearly complete? So you hear David in the midst of crisis. Listen to this; so beautiful. The first thing he does 
is he renews his confidence, his commitment to God. The second thing he does is that he finds contentment in God. The third thing he does is he seeks or he finds counsel. He seeks, he gets his counsel from God. And he does all three of those things. Why? So that he's confident when life is complete, when life is nearing its completion. Look in verses 9 through 11. Therefore, Having committed himself to God, having found contentment in God, having sought his counsel from God, he says, I'm confident, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Do you believe that when we place our, when we give our, when we renew our commitment to God and we find contentment in him, that our bodies rest secure? He says, my body will rest secure, verse 10, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you set your faithful one to see decay. No, I'm sorry, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And then David drops the mic. What a way, what a way to conclude the psalm. He will be present. It's so beautiful. He, David is so confident that God will be present as he passes through death. See, listen to this. Let me explain. David understands that salvation isn't getting away from what is dangerous. It's not getting away from disease. It's not getting away from death. Christian life is about getting, the Christian salvation is about getting through those things safely. It's not about getting away safely. It's about getting through safely. You're not getting away from death, but getting through death safely. I don't know if many of you have seen, remember the movie that came out many years ago, The Abyss. In, in, in the midst of the, the movie, there's a husband and wife and they're estranged from each other, but they're, they're, they're underwater and they're in a circumstance where they need to escape from one vessel to another and there's only, there's only one diving suit or, uh, that's functional. And these diving suits are critical. You can't just go in the water uh, or just uh, with, without the suit. But there's only one of them. And of course, there are, there are two of them. And the wife, this is an amazing thing, she, she is willing to enter into deep hypothermia, basically to lose consciousness, to become comatose, to ba basically become dead, so that, that he, the, her husband, is able to, take, to, you know, to put on the suit and, and swim through the, 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 the incredibly cold water. And so the idea is that he is actually going to take her, and as she is comatose, drag her through the water to back to the, the other ship where they will be safe, and there she will be, through CPR, will be revived. And that is exactly the picture of Christian salvation. That Jesus brings us through death. He brings us through difficulty. He brings us through the challenges of life. That is the nature of salvation. It is not getting away from, but it is actually going through. It is not, it is, it, the idea, again, is not a getting away, but a getting through. And so David stops cowering in the face of death. He stops cringing in the face of disease because he knows that he will be led through 
that he will get through, and on the other side is a, a joy and a delight, the very beginning, not an end. I don't know if you, any of you have read uh, the, final, the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, C.S. Lewis in, in The Last Battle. And the very, the very end, I won't tell the story, but at the very end, how he concludes uh, the, very, the, 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 final, um, the final section of his final book is, is beautiful. And he speaks, he says this, for us, he says, for us, that is for you and me, the author and the readers. For us, this is the end of all the stories. But he says, but for them, that is for the characters, for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. He continues, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Christian, is that how you think about life after death? Do you think of this life literally as nothing more than the, the cover and title page to a story that are just getting underway? Listen again to what David says. The words are so beautiful. You make known to me the path of life. You bring me, that is to say, you bring me safely through disease and death. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. What, what, a, what a beautiful picture. What a confident picture. What a hope-filled picture. What a promising picture of life after life after death. What a beautiful way that Lewis describes that. Do you believe that when we, when we die and we move to the next stage of life, that it is indeed chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before? So let me say this again. In the midst of crisis, what does David do? He renews his commitment to God. He finds his contentment in God. He seeks or gets his counsel from God. Why? So that, so that he might have confidence. He might be confident as life nears its conclusion. And why would we follow David's example? You know why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. In fact, as I mentioned at the beginning, in the very first Easter sermon, Peter cites Psalm 16, saying that it finds its truest fulfillment in Jesus' resurrection. Peter quotes verses 8 through 11 and then says, Seeing what was to come, uh, he spoke, he that is David, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Brothers and sisters, that is the very Holy Spirit that is at work in you and me if we have made that same commitment to God, surrendering ourselves, seeking contentment exclusively in Him, seeking our counsel from Him, that we might have a confidence, an amazing confidence uh, as, we face, uh, as we face the conclusion of our lives. Christian, in this time of fear, 
in this time of uncertainty, we can open Psalm 16 and find true security, true invulnerability, true safety, a safety that leads to joy, a a, a safety that leads to anticipation, not merely in this life, but especially in the one to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we, we love this, this psalm, this beautiful Psalm 16. We love that, that you give us, that you are indeed the source of all goodness, that indeed you are the supreme good. Father, we love that we can come to you for counsel. We can come to you, Father, to know the final word and all that is truly important. Father, we love that we can have a confidence, a confidence in the face of death, a defiance, Father, and when the world is overwhelmed, when the world is um, seeking only to grab a hold of and uh, to grab a hold of, of that which it, can, it cannot truly keep, Father, you give us the freedom to let go. You give us the freedom to serve. Father, we love you. Uh, Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.